Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. And I'm Liam Elder Connors. It's a warm, muggy morning in early August when I meet up with Michael yeah. Ruggles. We're in downtown St. Johnsbury at the Welcome Center. Um, yeah, well, when we get walking, I'm, I'm all ready to roll. Sure, sure. So. We head down to some trails on the banks of the Pasumsic River. It's a place where people experiencing homelessness often pitch tents, which is something Michael knows firsthand. But there is a spot down by the river that... In fact, I put my tent there when I first got into St. Johnsbury. (laughs) How long ago was that? Well, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Michael grew up in East Haven, a small town in Essex County with a population of about 200. He lived in a place called Lost Nation, which Michael says was a hippie community. Michael says he loved growing up there, but his father had a temper. So when he was 18, he joined the military. It was mostly a way to just get the hell out. But that was the wrong reasons to go in the military. You know, well, I should have known immediately because you know I went from a place where someone was screaming in my face all the time to a place where someone was screaming in my face all the time. <laughs> Michael left the military and was homeless, the first of many times in his life when he didn't have any permanent shelter. You know, it's been a series of couch surfing and staying with friends and... <laughs> It's been kind of a recurring theme. Right before the pandemic, Michael was going to school at Linden State College, now called Northern Vermont University, when his money ran out. He lost his dormitory housing and ended up sleeping in his car. Eventually, he pitched a tent in St. Johnsbury, down by the river, pretty close to where we're standing. How long were you tenting here for? Uh, only a few days, actually, and then NECA got me into the hotel program. NECA, that's Northeast Kingdom Community Action, is an anti-poverty nonprofit in the region. And the hotel program Michael's talking about, that's a statewide initiative used during the COVID-19 pandemic to shelter Vermont's homeless population. Basically, the state rented rooms at private hotels and motels for unsheltered Vermonters. This emergency housing program existed before the pandemic, but it was more limited. People could only stay for a certain number of months per calendar year, usually between one and three, depending on their situation, though the limits were waived during the cold winter months. When the pandemic hit, the state expanded the program, using an influx of federal money. The old rules limiting how long people could stay were suspended, turning what had been more of a temporary shelter program into something that felt more permanent. At the height of the pandemic, there were 2,000 households sheltered at motels around Vermont. More than 12,000 people have moved through the program in the past three years, including Michael Ruggles. He spent about two years at the Fairbanks Inn in St. Johnsbury. A few months ago, he moved out into his own apartment with the help of a local nonprofit. Uh, mentally, it's, it's a huge relief. You know, just knowing that I have a place to go back to where my stuff is. Not everyone has been so lucky. Vermont is in the midst of an acute housing crisis, and affordable housing is extremely scarce. At the same time, homelessness has increased. Vermont has the second highest rate of homelessness in the country. And this summer, the federal funds used to operate the expanded motel housing program ran out. 
So the state reinstated a version of the original rules that limited how long people could stay in the program. In June, about 700 people were kicked out. Evictions will move forward. Around 760 households are set to be evicted. The pandemic-era expansion of the hotel-motel voucher program is ending. Everywhere I went, people were packing up and wondering, what's next? Part of the first phase of people who now don't qualify for emergency housing. But before more people lost their housing, lawmakers reached a deal. Anyone still in the motel program could stay until April 1st, 2024, or until they found alternative living arrangements. That deal wouldn't apply to new people who entered the program. The legislature will likely debate the future of the motel housing program next year. Which leads us to today's question. Rather than renting out rooms in privately owned motels, could the state just buy the motels instead? Welcome to Brave Little State. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience. Today, a question about an emergency housing program in transition. What would the impact be if the state were to purchase, instead of renting, the motels being used to house people experiencing homelessness? Reporter Liam Elder Connors digs into this hypothetical. It would create a permanent safety net of interim housing, which the state currently lacks. And finds a useful case study on the opposite side of the country. The nonprofits that were doing this work looked at me and said, we need to buy one of those hotels. This is an episode about the future of one Vermont housing program. And it's about how we take care of one of our state's most vulnerable populations. Kind of makes you feel like you really failed and continue failing. We're a proud member of the NPR Network. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Today's winning question asker is Daniel Luttrell. He grew up in Bethel, went to the University of Vermont, and spent about 15 years in Burlington. And this isn't the first time we've met. Did we talk years ago for a brave little state? We did. It was the, um, I was one of like a million people that asked the question, but it was where people leaving, where young people leaving the state. Daniel's currently in Florida for graduate school, but he still keeps an eye on what goes on in his home state, in part by listening to The Frequency, Vermont Public's daily news podcast. Daniel says during the pandemic, he heard a lot about how Vermont was using hotels and motels to shelter people. And he heard the state was using a lot of money to do it. Because they're saying, like, it's this many millions of dollars per month to to run this program. In my head, I'm like, okay, well, that's probably the cost of one motel, (laughs) maybe two. Um, Every time I heard the dollar figure in my head, I was just like, can't we just buy them? Over the past three years, the state spent about $5.3 million a month on the program. Daniel thought that if the state owned some of the motels, it could do a lot more to expand services for people. And somehow the state could 
like officially manage this program and maybe maybe have enough social workers, case managers, other social services involved in the program to make it a bridge or a stepping stone for people to get out of, you know, experiencing homelessness. Maybe I'm just dreaming big and being, being super positive and ideological. Daniel's not the only person thinking about the possibility of buying motels to turn into emergency shelter. Housing advocates see this as a way to quickly and permanently increase the state's supply of much-needed shelter beds. It might also help address a problem brought up by critics of the current motel housing program, who say that the system outsources the care of some of Vermont's most vulnerable residents to private businesses, whose incentive first and foremost is to make money. Other states are already doing this, and it's been done in Vermont to some extent by nonprofits. And now the state agency in charge of the motel housing program is actively thinking about this approach. We'll get to more of that soon. But first, I wanted to talk to people who actually live at some of these motels. In St. Johnsbury, I visit the Fairbanks Inn, which houses people through Vermont's motel housing program. It's just off Route 2 on the way into town. There's a few residents out back. They're sitting on benches smoking. Not everyone wants me to use their names. They're concerned that it could jeopardize their current housing. Everyone has their own story, though, for how they ended up here. Cindy moved to Vermont from Texas to be closer to her kids, but she couldn't find a house. Megan Knox says she was kicked out of her apartment. Like We were evicted nine days before Christmas from my apartment, nine days before Christmas. Another woman who asked not to be named tells me this was the 16th hotel she and her family have been at in the past year. They recently moved to the Fairbanks Inn after a motel they'd been staying at in Jeffersonville flooded during the July storm. Well, the one isn't my youngest. If I decide to, or if I can stay here, he'll have to go to the third school within a year. And he has behavioral issues and he has a lot of trauma. People who are getting bounced to have mental health issues, it's not good for them. Current and former motel residents have told me that it's been exhausting dealing with the uncertainty of the program, especially this summer when it looked like the program would end. Back in July, I met Paula Bro and Crystal Goss. They're living at the Pinecrest Motel in Barton. That's about 30 miles north of St. Johnsbury. Is is there a label that you feel like people are putting on you Yes, yes, absolutely. What what label? Lazy, I'm just looking for free housing, you know, like, oh, the state's paying for it, yay. No, it's not like that at all. I can't find an apartment. I've looked. Paula is 60, with dark shoulder-length hair streaked with gray and an eyebrow ring. Crystal's 36. She had her copper-colored hair mostly pulled back in a ponytail. When I meet her, she's wearing a tank top that has a butterfly and the words be kind across the middle. Crystal tells me not knowing if she'd be able to stay in the program is stressful. Kind of makes you feel like you, you failed, really failed and continue failing. And we didn't get much notice to even be able to find a place. No. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you gotta be out by the first. Oh, thank you. Okay. I'm very thankful and, I mean, very grateful. I am, too. Um, yeah. You know, for for what they're doing to help us, I just feel there should be better choices with it. Despite the stress of their situation, or perhaps because of it, the two women have become close friends. They cook dinner together frequently, which is complicated since their rooms at the hotel don't have kitchens. Instead, the two make do with a variety of small appliances like microwave ovens, air fryers, and griddles and they help each other cope. 
it's really hard to sleep at night. That's yeah. the good thing about both of us, too, is because we don't sleep good at night. So we stay up all night talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we stay, we stay up talking and watching TV. And yeah. Do you have any favorite TV shows to watch together? Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> When I first met Paula, she was getting ready to leave the motel. Not because she found housing, but because the state changed the program's rules. She'd have to contribute 30% of her monthly income to help pay for her room. Paula, who's on disability, would have to pay $500 a month, and she'd have to move to a smaller room. She says after paying for her housing, her car, and food, she wouldn't have much left. It's been like a month or so. How are you doing? Hanging in there. Since I last saw Paula, she'd moved into her ex-husband's place in Orleans. I sat with her on the porch, along with her dog Cujo, a Pomeranian and rat terrier mix. You tell him, Cujo. Paula says moving into her ex's place has been okay, but it's not ideal. Their dogs don't get along. It's working out. The dogs are doing okay? We have to, like, we'll let him out, and then we'll put his dog away for a while, and then we'll put him in the bedroom, I'll go sit with him, and we'll let his dog, yeah, because, no, they don't get along. Yeah. But we work it out. I reached out to Paula because I wanted to know what she thought about Daniel's question. (laughs) What would the impact be if the state were to buy the motels they were renting instead of just renting them? Like if they just bought them and made them into shelters. So what do you think about... I think that would be a great idea. I do. I think it would work out a lot better because they would be handling it more than the state saying, now you have to do it this way or that way and... The rules change all the time, and, and you're you're complying, but then, boom, the next day they're different. You know, so it's hard to keep up with them. And I wound up having to move out, you know. It's been okay, but it, it was still devastating a little bit. Vermont had around 500 shelter beds prior to the pandemic, according to the Department for Children and Families. A lot of those beds were in congregate shelters, where people are mostly in one big room. That can be challenging. There isn't much privacy, and there's not always a secure place to leave belongings. When Vermont expanded its use of motels as shelters, all of a sudden people had their own rooms, with locking doors. And for hotel and motel owners who saw their business dry up when the pandemic hit, renting rooms to the state was a financial lifeline. But that didn't mean the motel housing program was perfect. Mark Hangsler, a staff attorney with Legal Services Vermont, says there are three big issues, and they really came to light once the state expanded its use of the program during the pandemic. First, a lack of data. Mark says since the state isn't on the ground at the privately owned motels, it's hard to know what services people need or to track outcomes of the program. I don't think anybody could say the state being an arm's length distance away from the population that it's trying to serve is benefited from a data perspective uh, uh, by that distance. Mark says health code violations are another problem. From March 2020 to early August, there were 189 health and safety complaints filed, according to records from the state health department. Some of the complaints include bed bug infestations, floors covered with rodent feces and urine, and sewage backing up into rooms. Hotels consistently appear to be unable to meet the basic health and safety requirements that the state has set. In reporting by other news outlets, hotel owners have blamed the problems on motel residents or an inability to find contractors to fix issues. 
According to reporting this year from VT Digger in seven days, the state's response to health code violations at motels has often failed to adequately hold motel owners accountable for poor living conditions. There are ways to push people by penalizing them to comply with those laws, but it's not the same. It is not the same as the state making decisions on its own and complying with its own rules. The third problem, Mark says, is that people who stay in the motel are limited in their ability to appeal a decision a motel manager makes about their housing. If I'm at one of the hotels in Vermont and I don't have a home and I'm there night to night, and then one day the hotel owner decides, you know, Mark, I don't really like you and I think I want you out right now, my remedy is that I need to call economic services and say, please find me another hotel to stay at tonight. Mark says these problems boil down to a core tension, that the state government is asking a private company to shelter a very vulnerable population. The government can take as many precautions and create as many laws as possible in order to try to force private companies to fulfill the obligation of the government to take care of its people. But at the end of the day, the obligations of companies are to make money. Mark couldn't say whether the state buying up motels would be a good strategy. But other housing advocates, like Ann Sawson, are pushing the approach. It would be really transformative. Um, Ann is a public health practitioner and researcher at Dartmouth College. She says Vermont needs a better plan to address its unhoused population, which has been growing in recent years. Vermont's homelessness rate has increased 151 percent since the start of the pandemic. It's the second worst rate of homelessness in the country, according to a recent federal study. And this year's annual point in time count found nearly 3,300 Vermonters experiencing homelessness, an increase of 515 compared to 2022. Some housing experts say Vermont needs to add between 30 and 40,000 more homes by 2030 to meet the current demand. Anne says converting motels into shelters is an important stopgap solution. Um, it would create a permanent safety net of interim housing, which the state currently lacks, and address the gaping uh, need for a bridge uh, between unsheltered homelessness and permanent housing solutions. Um, just Some Vermont nonprofits have done this, buying motels and turning them into housing or shelter. Ann says that's good, but there needs to be a more concerted and statewide effort. We have a lot of evidence about the solutions that work. Um, What we lack right now is political will um, to translate them into practice in our state. That might be changing. We definitely have to rethink the way that we're doing this. Chris Winters is the commissioner of the Department for Children and Families, the agency that runs the motel housing program. He says that the existing motel program is due for some updates and that buying and converting motels is an approach that is on the table for his agency. I think with some good project planning, there could be a a path forward to start getting a lot of this underway soon. One big reason to buy instead of renting the rooms is the cost. That's exactly what got our question asker Daniel Luttrell interested in the first place. While most of the initial $210 million spent on the program was federal money, moving forward, Vermont taxpayers will be footing the bill. Winter says right now the state pays motels about $140 a night for a room. That comes to $4,200 a month, nearly double the median rent in Burlington. So I think we could do it in a more cost-effective way uh, by purchasing hotels. And so we want to have those conversations with owners and uh, see uh, who's in the market to sell. 
Winters acknowledges the problems raised by attorney Mark Hangsler, the habitability issues, lack of data, and the due process concerns. And he says if the state owned the motels, it could improve the situation. If it was uh, owned by the state, uh, run by the state, run by a community partner, we have some standards that we put on top of those shelters. Um, and we have a lot of resources to make sure that they are, uh, are acceptable. So what could a larger scale motel conversion program look like? And what impact might it have? To answer those questions, we're going to travel nearly 2,900 miles to Oregon. That's when we come back. When the pandemic hit in 2020, both Vermont and Oregon turned to motels to house people experiencing homelessness. In those early days, though, many people thought that we'd only need to avoid gathering for three or four weeks. But as you probably remember, we quickly realized that we'd need to keep social distancing and isolation measures in place for a lot longer. The nonprofits that were doing this work looked at me and said, we need to buy one of those hotels. This is Oregon State Representative Pam Marsh, a Democrat. Because we'd seen how much it meant for people to be housed even just for three weeks, to be able to close the door and put their stuff down and start to think about how to pull their lives together. Other organizations around Oregon were starting to think the same thing. So Marsh started working on a proposal. Then massive wildfires hit Oregon, devastating the area that Marsh represents in the legislature. More than half of the 4,000 housing units lost statewide in the fires were in Marsh's community. And what that did was really make it much more clear in communities that already had a housing crisis um, and now had the loss of units due to wildfire that there was no time to waste, that the state really needed to step up. Oregon Community Foundation, a nonprofit that runs a number of statewide grants and scholarships, was tapped to administer the program. The group would dole out money for motel conversion projects that were pitched by local municipalities, county governments, and nonprofit organizations. Initially, Oregon lawmakers put $65 million from the state general fund into the initiative, known as Project Turnkey. That initial funding created 865 housing units across 19 shelters, all in under seven months. After the success of the first round, the Oregon legislature approved another $50 million for Project Turnkey in 2022. That added hundreds more units to the state's shelter system. The total is 32 properties around the state of Oregon. Megan Loeb is Senior Program Officer with Oregon Community Foundation. They are in 18 counties out of our 36 counties. It is increasing our shelter capacity by about 1,400 units of housing. So this has increased our shelter capacity by 36% in our state. Megan and Marsh, the state rep, say there have been challenges. Sometimes it was hard to find motel owners willing to sell at a reasonable price. Other times, properties weren't in good enough shape. Sometimes neighbors weren't happy about the proposals. Zoning also presented a barrier, though the Oregon legislature passed a bill in 2021 to ease zoning regulations around motel-to-shelter conversions. And while Project Turnkey did increase shelter capacity, Oregon needs more. And affordable housing units are still scarce, says Representative Marsh. That's actually a big logjam right now in a lot of communities is we can get people into shelter, we can put them into Project Turnkey. Can we transition them to something after they've stabilized? That is a, an enduring challenge in many places. Mm-hmm. 
Housing advocates say turning motels into emergency housing has another benefit. It gives you a structure that could eventually become permanently affordable rental units. That approach has been used in Vermont. Um, at the very least, you can sort of tell me a little bit first off about what we're looking at here. Sure. So this is the, this is the um, second Ho-Hum Motel, same owner. We bought one on Shelburne Road a bunch of years ago uh, and converted that for folks who were uh, formerly homeless, actually, folks who were chronically homeless. Michael Monty is the CEO of Champlain Housing Trust. We're at the site of CHT's latest motel conversion project. The nonprofit bought the Ho-Hum Motel in South Burlington in 2020 to serve as a quarantine spot for homeless Vermonters during the pandemic. Unlike Oregon's project Turnkey, which was focused on creating shelter beds, this CHT project will turn the former motel's 32 rooms into 20 permanently affordable apartments for people exiting homelessness. Since the 1990s, there have been 13 motel conversion projects, including the Ho-Hum Motel, that have been funded by the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board, a quasi-state entity that invests public money into affordable housing development. And many of the motel projects were done by Champlain Housing Trust. Um, maybe you think we can try to go to show me a Let's little bit. Let's see if somebody yells at us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we walk over to one of the buildings where Monty shows me some of the work they've done. Basically, the plan is to turn two former motel rooms into one apartment. Monty says to do that, they cut a hole between the two rooms and use the bathroom plumbing of one room to put in the kitchen. And it's just like, boom, there it is. And, you know, from a cost perspective, this is so much less expensive than new construction and a lot quicker, too. So I think that looking at this model as an opportunity to get units online is a smart move. You know, that's why Bob Peters, CHT's contractor, walks over as we leave the unit. Is it going okay? Yeah, it's going great. Going to be yeah. done soon? Yeah. He's done a few of these projects for CHT, and it's pretty straightforward. What are you working on today for everything? Everything. Yeah, yeah the outside, because we have no rain for once. So we're trying to get, get the whole crew here yeah, painting. No rain. <laughs> no rain for one day. So we're trying to get the painting done, but all the rough and Monty says more motel conversions could be a good way to boost the state's shelter capacity. But he says there should also be a plan for the long-term use of the facilities, like eventually turning them into apartment units. I think the long-term use is really, really critical. Um, I mean, I just think from an investment perspective, because... Another consideration, Monty says, is the cost of running the shelter once you buy it. You know, buying it will reduce the cost, absolutely. It's a smart move uh, to be able to do that. But there is then the next step, which is who's going to pay for the motel stays um, for the individuals who are there and who's going to pay for the services. And that has to be really... Staffing shelters made from converted motels has been an issue in at least one case. A new place is the nonprofit group that ran Burlington's low-barrier overnight shelter out of the former Champlain Inn. It announced in May that it would stop operating the shelter this fall due to staffing shortages. Now, two nonprofits will take over. Champlain Valley Office of Economic Opportunity will operate the shelter, while Champlain Housing Trust will own the building and manage the property. When I asked current and former motel residents what they thought about the state buying the motels like Daniel suggested, everyone thought it was a good idea. One of the big things I heard was that they thought it might create more consistency and stability. If the state were in charge, all the motels could have the same rules and expectations. One woman said the state should hire residents to work in the shelters. While I was in St. Johnsbury walking around with Michael Ruggles, I asked him what he thought. What do you think about this idea of the state buying the motels? I think that's a fantastic idea. 
I mean, it, initially, it'll cost them a lot of money. It'll be, you know, people will say, oh, why are you spending that much? But I think in the long run, it'll save money. It's about more than money, Michael says. It's tough not having a place to put your stuff, to not have privacy. And it's even harder to do all that alone, without anyone around who knows what you're going through. Michael says being in a hotel with others who have the same struggles creates a kind of solidarity. Because, I mean, with the hotel program, one of the huge things is uh, people form little pockets of support. You know, you and I get to know each other. And, you know, if we smoke cigarettes, you give me some, I give you some, I help you with food. You know, you get that whole support system in place. Paula Bro and Crystal Goss found that support system living next door to each other at the Pinecrest Motel. Paula, who left the motel, says she stayed in touch with Crystal, but it's been tough. Yeah, I got used to just having my friends there and being able to even talk about what's going on with housing, anything. Like, I had someone to talk to. Now I don't really have that. Thankfully, she's still close. So Paula will get in her red Jeep and make the 15-minute drive so she can stay in touch with the friends and support she found at the Pinecrest. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Daniel Lottrell for the great question. To see photos from Liam's reporting, head to our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the BLS newsletter. We're also on Instagram and Reddit at BraveStateVT. This episode was reported by Liam Elder Connors and produced by Sabine Pooks and me, Josh Crane. I also did the mix and sound design. Additional support from Sophie Stevens. Angela Evansy is Brave Little State's executive producer. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public. If you like our show, you can make a gift at bravelittlestate.org slash donate or leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont journalism. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.